God, it is great to be here this morning. It's great to be here and sing praises to you, especially this time of year as we uh, just consider the great gift that you gave us and the, the gift of your son. God, we thank you for the time that we have in the next uh, few moments as we uh, listen to the, the words that Phil has prepared. Um, just ask that you will bless his words. I know that he pours over them uh, with his whole heart. I ask that you will speak to him today, and I ask that you will open our hearts to be very receptive to what you have for us. Thank you again for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, David. Anybody else ever get annoyed when you're out Christmas shopping and recognize that the holiday has become so commercialized that most people have forgotten about Jesus? Anybody else bothered by that? A lot of you are. All you have to do is go to Walmart or go to a mall or go to Shopco, go any place, and you can see the commercialization of Christmas. Well, I find myself at times thinking, gosh, wouldn't it be fun if we could celebrate Christmas the way they did in the first century, the way the early church would have? That just causes my imagination to go all kinds of different places. And oftentimes it, it ends up looking just like this. I can picture the early church all gathering at Mary's house, the mother of Jesus. Now the early church, when I say that, means that there would have been thousands of people. You might remember after the first sermon, 3,000 people responded to the message. So it was growing very, very quickly. But still in my mind, I picture all these folks coming to Mary's house. Some people inside, some people standing in the front yard, some out in the back, the doors open so people can just pass through and talk to whoever they'd like. And that sets up its own picture for me, just imagining who might have been there. In my imagination, I can see Jude and James, the half-brothers of Jesus, holding court, telling everybody what it was like to grow up with a brother that said he was the Messiah. The Bible says that they didn't believe that he was the Savior until after the resurrection, so they would have had some stories to tell, some of them fairly humbling. I can picture Peter and Paul both there standing on opposite sides of the room, not sure what to do with each other. They were both pillars of the church, but at times things were a little sketchy between the two of them. So I, I picture them separated by a little bit of distance. Martha, in my mind, is in the kitchen working hard on this dinner, and Mary is kind of flitting around like a butterfly, greeting everybody as they come in. And Martha, holding a, a big spatula in her hand at times, be irritated that Mary wasn't in there with her this Christmas dinner, for heaven's sakes. Thousands of people are here. You need to be in here helping me. But Mary's just out doing her thing. I can picture Barnabas greeting everybody as they came through the door, kind of slapping them on the back, telling them how happy he is that they're there. And everybody wanting to talk to Barnabas, your spirits are just lifted by any conversation that you would have with that man. Other people that might be present filling in some of these holes could have been James and John, the sons of thunder. As I picture them in this scenario, they're standing next to the table where the turkey carcass is at. And everybody has picked it clean and the only thing left is the wishbone and the sons of thunder have a hold of it, ready to pull that apart. There's all kinds of folks that would be gathering it at this type of a holiday feast if it truly was the early church. Because it's her home, she'd be the center of attention. And when she decided that the meal was over and, and everybody needed to gather together, nobody would question her. In fact, folks would have come to her house, at least in my imagination, in hopes that she would tell the Christmas story. 
Now, many of them might have already heard her tell it before, but something about the story coming out of Mary's mouth made it very, very special. So she would gather everybody together, the people in the house and the people outside. There'd be some miraculous way that they'd be able to hear. Mary would go, as I picture it, right to the center of the room where the special artifact sits. Always has, since the the time she first saw it. It's always been in the center of her house. It's a manger. Not just a manger, it is the manger. My imagination says that after the birth of Jesus, Mary might have said to Joseph, hey, I want to take this with us. I know it belongs in the barn, but this is pretty special. I want to take this manger. And Joseph would have said, are you kidding me? I got to haul that manger all over the place? No way. And she would say, Joseph, now I want this, so you make sure it happens. So Joseph would say, yes, dear. And he picks it up and straps it on the top of the donkey, and they pack that thing literally all over the world. When they go down to Egypt, there goes the manger. And Joseph, the whole time, is thinking, taking up a whole donkey to haul this manger but here we go and they get back from Egypt and he's brought the manger back and now Joseph is gone Bible doesn't tell us what's happened to him he's just gone but the manger is still there and it is Christmas day December 25th everybody's gathered around it and Mary just sits down next to the manger ready to tell the story you could hear a pin drop as she gets started she begins all of it by talking about the angels and what it was like when they came and declared that she was pregnant with the Son of God. She would say that she was amazed by that, still trying to sort it out all these years later, how it happened, but it was a great moment. Mary would talk about the warmth that filled her soul after the angels told her what was going on. And she would quickly segue into talking about her parents' reaction when she went to them and told them that she was pregnant, but not to worry, it was the Son of God. They were skeptical, not sure at all about what to do with that news, but Mary would tell about their reactions and their faces and the words that came out of their mouth, and people would hang on every thought. She would talk about Joseph's faithfulness. She would talk about a cross-country trip on the back of a donkey when she was very pregnant, how uncomfortable she was and how painful the ride was. Of course, she would mention the rude innkeeper that turned them away and set the stage for her having to give birth, literally give birth to her son in a barn. I'm sure she would talk about the wise men that showed up a few years later, and how special that was, but she would certainly mention the shepherds that came in the middle of the night. The highlight of her story would come when she talked about the darkness. Terribly dark that night. No moon and the stars hadn't come out yet. It was strange. She'd never seen a sky like that. When the stars came out, it it lit everything up. There was one in particular that shone so bright, Mary says, that, that you could read a newspaper by it. Changed everything. Everybody's listening to every word she has to say. The only interruption that would have come in the midst of that, the only sound besides her speaking, even the children were quiet. The only sound that anybody would have heard would have come from outside. The celebration in the streets. The people outside in the front yard would have been distracted through the whole telling of this story because of the party that was going on outside. Because you see, if this really did happen on December 25th, there was another celebration that would have been going on. It had been happening for years and years and years. It happened prior to the birth of Christ, and it happened literally for centuries after the birth of Christ, always on December 25th. It was a celebration of the winter solstice. 
In the ancient communities, every one of them had their own celebration of the longest days of the year coming back. The long nights were over, and now we had opportunity to celebrate what they referred to as the rebirth of the sun. The sun was going to start shining longer, and that was a reason to party. Historians said that those parties lasted anywhere from five to ten days, and they were nothing but drunken debauchery. Typically, they were defined by the singing of body songs and the drinking of rum and, and partying in the streets that bordered right on the edge of rioting. It was a terrible time, an absolute terrible time. So if Mary had invited all these folks to her house on December 25th to celebrate Jesus' birthday, that's what would have been going on in the streets. At least for the 274 years after the death of Christ, 274 AD would actually find the Roman Emperor Aurelian declaring December 25th like this. Natalis Solus Invicti, which means the festival of the birth of the invincible sun. He declared that a holiday that everyone would celebrate. 274 years after the birth of Jesus, everybody on December 25th would focus on the festival of the birth of the invincible sun, the winter solstice. But at that point then, the church started to get involved, and they said they wanted to change that practice because, remember, it was nothing but debauchery in the streets. So in the year 320 A.D., the Pope would declare that Jesus was born on December 25th. He was the first person to make that declaration. Nobody really knows when Jesus was born. Prior to the Pope making that declaration in 320 A.D., people celebrated the birth of Christ anywhere from September to January and on every day in between those because nobody really knows when Jesus was born. Five years after the Pope's declaration, Constantine, who had converted to Christianity, would make it a little harder for people to ignore because he declared December 25th a holy day. He is also the one who said that Sundays would be declared as holy, days of worship. From the time of the New Testament up to 325 A.D., People were worshiping on Sundays because the Bible referred to them as the Lord's Day based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in that year, it would become official. If you've ever wondered how it happened, Constantine is the one who did that. In 325 AD, he said, now this is official. Sundays are our days of worship. And December 25th, December 25th will be the day that we celebrate Jesus' birth. He declared it a holiday. He declared that feast would be given in Jesus' honor. He declared that, many scholars believe, to try to stop the debauchery of the winter solstice celebrations. He wanted to take a pagan holiday and make it something Christian. He wanted to make it holy. He wanted to hit it with some righteousness. But it didn't work. In fact, it wouldn't be until about 200 years ago that people would actually focus on the things that they were starting all the way back in the year 320 A.D. Interestingly enough, it would be the societies of Great Britain and a new country known as America that would change that. People would start to see Jesus' birthday as something holy, something to be remembered, something that should be venerated, something that should be declared different. 200 years ago, 
17, 1800 years, the day that we would have chosen as Jesus' birthday was anything but. It had a whole different meaning attached to it. It had a whole different significance that people brought to it. It was all about the Son. It may very well be that it was with those things in mind that Zechariah would say what he did in what we know from the Bible as Zechariah's song. Go with me to Luke chapter 1. I'm going to show you one of those things that I would refer to as a great wink of God in the Bible, meaning God knew exactly what was going on and he had something else happening. He really did. So he winks. He gives a, a little bit of a nod towards popular culture. And this is one of those times that that's exactly what happens. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. As John was ready to enter this world, Zechariah opened his mouth and we received what we know as Zechariah's song. And it's really, really good stuff. Zechariah speaks to his son, John. He speaks about his son, but he also speaks about Jesus. I want you to listen to what he says. Verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Now we're about to read verse 78. I want you to listen close. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Isn't that cool? Zechariah spoke directly to the culture of the day. December 25th, years, centuries before anybody would say that that was the birth of Jesus, Zechariah would make this statement, the rising sun will come from heaven. Those are the words that we have right up here. Will come to us from heaven. Now, in that terminology, in those days, he would have their attention. If you really want to talk about the sun returning in such a way that light will enter this world and give us something to celebrate, then you need to forget about the sun that rises in the east and sets in the west. It is the sun that will come to us from heaven that matters. And he will bring such a light into this world that it will permeate everything. The rising sun will come to us from heaven. That's a great part of the story, particularly when you put it all in context and you're able to understand the things that were happening in that society. When Zechariah used these words, you know that people had to be listening. You know they had to pay attention. Because as much as we might anticipate Christmas all year long, they anticipated the celebration of the solstice. Now all of a sudden, he has spoken their language. And in so doing, he told them about the Messiah. He told them about heaven opening up and changing everything. It's a wonderful part of the Christmas story that when we're able to see it, causes us to see the rest of the story in somewhat, no pun intended, 
a different light. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Luke chapter 2, very familiar part of the Christmas story to everyone, starting in verse 8. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now can you imagine what that whole scene must have been like? Shepherds are out doing their job. It's not a glamorous job, not at all. And the angels interrupted. They come dancing in the field and they bring this message to them. How intriguing. Part of the intrigue of it, at least in my mind, is who God chose to announce the coming of the rising sun from heaven to. Who it was that first heard the message of this glorious light that was coming into the world. He chose shepherds. You ever thought about shepherds, what their life is like? It's pretty simple. Follow the sheep. Take the sheep from food to water, back to food. Put the sheep to bed at night, wake the sheep up in the morning, take them to water, take them to food. Move them from this field to that field. What a horrible life. That's what they did. And they spent so much time with the sheep that they smelled like sheep. They were stinky. They were smelly. They were lonely. They were uneducated. Did I mention they were lonely? They only saw sheep. But more than that, these shepherds, these shepherds were chosen. They were chosen by God. They were chosen to be the ones that would see the angels out in the field. They were chosen to be the ones that would hear about the rising sun coming from heaven. They were the chosen ones. The Bible doesn't tell us their names. Isn't that interesting? These are the most popular people in all of the Bible. They have been portrayed by more people than anybody else in all of Scripture. Professional actors have donned unbelievably elaborate costumes to portray the shepherds. Little boys and little girls in preschool have put on bathrobes to portray the shepherds. But nobody knows their name. Nobody knows who they are. The Bible doesn't say that there were three shepherds out in the field. There was Deanie, there was Matt, and there was David. Those are the three shepherds. It doesn't say that. It reserves the names for heaven itself, and we will not know who these men are until we get there. All we know is that they were shepherds doing their job. They were working hard during the day. They were working hard at night, and God chose them. That in and of itself is somewhat significant. Think of what would have happened if God had chosen preachers to make this revelation to. If he had chosen preachers to say the Messiah has come, the preachers would have gone to their commentaries and all of their books to say, how did we miss it? 
And then they would have stood up and tried to explain it with way too many words. He'd have chosen rulers. Things would have been different. You can imagine that the rulers of the land would have said to all of their cabinet and their military leaders, is this a threat that we need to be concerned about? So God stayed away from the rulers. If he would have chosen the rich and the successful, you can picture what that would look like as well. They would have quickly looked around to see who all was watching so that they got credit for the announcement. God chose shepherds, everyday men doing life, faithfully doing life. Here's the reason for that, and it is quite significant, because God was declaring that that's who he was coming for, everyday people doing life. He was coming to save all of us. And how better to communicate that message than to go to the shepherds. Forget about the preachers. Forget about the rulers. Forget about the rich and successful. Let me just go to every man. And I will make sure that everybody understands that this Savior, this rising sun coming from heaven will shine on everyone and be available to every person. It is a great part of the story followed by this great part of the story. It happened at night. Jesus came at night. The Gospel of John and the Gospel of Mark don't spend much time at all telling the Christmas story. But John, in his telling, focuses on the light. And in order to focus on the light, he has to focus on the darkness of that night. Listen to what he says in John chapter 1. John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, you might notice in your Bible that Word is capitalized. That means it is a name. It is not just the word Word. It is a name, and it is a name for Jesus. It is a description of who He is. In the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, that is one of the most pointed passages in all the Bible on the Trinity, and it gets more pointed in verse 2. He was with God... Jesus was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There it is. That's John's telling of the Christmas story. Not unlike Zacharias, the rising sun will come to us from heaven, and it will shine in the darkness. The darkness is going to be somewhat baffled by it. The darkness will be overcome by it, but the light will actually overcome the darkness. We could ask a lot of questions about why it is that Jesus came in the the nighttime. There could be a, a number of different answers, but I like this one. Take a look at it. The angels came in the night because that's when light is best seen and when it is needed most. That's why Jesus was born at night. That's why the declaration came at night in the midst of the darkness, because that's when light is best seen and when it is needed most. It's quite intriguing to me, and it has been for a number of years that Jesus was born at night, and the more I think about that, the more I realize that the majority of baby announcements that I have heard involve them being born in the middle of the night. I've done a a lot of different studies on that at times, and have found out that the trend is somewhat changing. There aren't as many babies being born in the middle of the night as there once was because of planned C-sections and induced labors. That's why. But out of hospital births, the majority of them still happen from 1 o'clock in the morning until 4.52 in the morning. That's when the averages are. 
between 1 a.m. and 4.52 in the morning. Now, if you're like me, that causes your mind to go all kinds of different places, particularly when you understand that Jesus was born at night. So why did that happen? It may very well be to remind us of what Zechariah had to say. The rising sun will come to us. Every baby born at night is a reminder of Jesus Christ. Subtle one, but a reminder. Every baby born at night is a reminder that the light is coming and the darkness is going to go away. That is a subtlety of God that we cannot miss. When Jesus was born at night and the angels made their declaration at night, it was because we needed to see it. And every baby born in the middle of the night, though inconvenient, particularly to fathers, inconvenient to the dads that are in that delivering room, it's a reminder of Jesus. And that's the way it should be. And that reminder takes us back into the Christmas story that we might remember exactly what the angels said to the shepherds. Let's go back to Luke chapter 2. Picking up again in verse 8, here's what we read. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. There were two things that the angels wanted the shepherds to hang their hats on, good news and great joy. Now let's take both of those and just pick them apart real quick. Have you ever received really good news? I'm talking about really good news. That's not just, oh look, I drew a cat tag. That's not the type of good news I'm talking about. I'm talking about really, really good news. Things like this. You go out to the mailbox and pull out a letter and on the outside of the envelope it says, very important. So you open it up and across the top of the letter it says, paid in full. As you read the rest of the letter, you find out that your mortgage has been paid in full. You don't ever have to pay another dime. It has been taken care of. That's good news right there. Paid in full. Or maybe you, you get a phone call and it's good news as well. This is what it sounds like. You answer the phone, say hello. They say, hello, this is Timberline Auto Center. And can I speak to Phil? Well, this is Phil. What can I do for you? And on the other end of the line, we have Terry Andreessen saying to me, Phil, you have just won a brand new pickup. It's a Ford, of course. You have won a brand new pickup. All the taxes have been paid. Everything is covered for you. All you have to do is come get the keys and I'll be happy to give them to you. Terry, I'll be there in about two minutes. And I'm on my way to pick up the new truck. That's good news. Isn't that good news? Somebody say amen. That's good news. Not just that I wanted, imagine that you wanted as well. It'd be even better news for you. Or how about this? This is a little more pointed, a little more purposeful. You've been going to the doctor for a number of months, battling cancer. At your last appointment, the doctor told you that it didn't look like there was anything that they would be able to do. You needed to discontinue all treatments and get your affairs in order. You needed to take care of any business that remained on this earth because you were not long for this life. All you got in the last few meetings was the long face from the doc. Now you've gone back for a checkup where they're just going to tell you what the progression of the disease is and they put you through all the scans and they draw all the blood and do all the tests and the doctor says, I know we don't have much time so you just stay right here and I'll come back with the results. And he rushes everything through and when he walks in he has a perplexed look on his face and you don't understand it but you've seen bad looks before and, and this doesn't really look like one. He sits down across from you and says, 
I have really strange news for you. The cancer is gone, completely gone. It doesn't show up in the blood test. It didn't show up in your scans. It is just gone. And you look at him and say, well, what does that mean? And, and the doctor says, I really don't know, but I know you're not fighting cancer anymore. Now, that'd be good news, wouldn't it? That's the type of good news that, that we find in this declaration. The angels are bringing that type of good news, life-changing good news into the world. And they go on to say that coupled with that good news is great joy. Now, it's interesting to me when we study the Bible, preachers will always try to separate joy and happiness one from the other and say that joy is different than happiness, that it's a deeper type of happiness. I have probably said that myself, though I've never been able to reconcile it in my mind. When you go exploring the whole idea of joy in Scripture, what you find is that it coincides with the word happy. It also coincides with a few other words, like the word blessing. They are all interwoven one into the other. We can't just separate joy out and let it stand on its own. We can't separate happiness out and let it stand on its own. They all intersect. They all coincide. I'll show you a passage of Scripture that illustrates that. Go with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We spent a number of months in this book, so it should be familiar to you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. Now let me stop there for just a second. If you just give that a cursory read, you will miss the point of what the Bible is trying to say. If you read that real fast, you will confuse it like everyone does for the real meaning within it, because you would read it like this. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made for the righteous, not for lawbreakers and rebels. That is not what the Bible says. The law was not given for the righteous. The law was given for the lawbreakers and the rebels, that it might show them their sin, that it might show us our sin. That's the purpose of the law, that it will illuminate sin. So we have to be very careful as we read that passage that we don't try to reverse the meaning and say that the law was given for the righteous and the godly. It was given for the ungodly that they might see their sin and then follow why that is. Picking up in verse 10. And for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Once the law has done its work and it illuminates sin in a person's life, that person is confronted with the opportunity to conform to the glorious gospel. We could take out the word conform and put in the word submit and probably understand it a little bit better. We have the opportunity to submit to the glorious gospel that things might change within us. If we were to take all of our sin and place it up against the glorious gospel of the New Testament, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, it can change everything within us. And that glorious gospel, according to the Bible, comes from the blessed God which was entrusted to us. The glorious gospel of the blessed God. Now, in the actual literal translations of Scripture, the word blessed is happy. 
So read that differently. That conforms to the glorious gospel of the happy God which he entrusted to me. God is happy. So when we start studying joy, we find godly happiness. When we start studying joy in Scripture, it's going to lead us directly into the throne room of God. And that is this mysterious, strange thing that is hard for us to process. G.K. Chesterton would actually say it like this. Happiness is a mystery like religion and should never be rationalized. It really is that mysterious. Have you ever been around somebody that's just happy all the time? Almost giddy, happy? Anybody ever been around them? Ever been bothered by their happiness? You've tried to figure out exactly where that comes from? Well, we're not supposed to rationalize it too much. If that happiness comes from God, then that's exactly enough information. It comes from God. Because if the blessed God is a happy God, that helps us understand some of the things that he taught other places in Scripture, like this in Jeremiah chapter 29. I'll give you a second to go to the Old Testament with me. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Again, these are familiar words. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. If God is able to say that, we have to understand that that comes out of that blessed God, that happy God. He has plans for us, plans that aren't supposed to harm us or hurt us. They're plans to give us a hope and a future. Those come when we conform to the glorious gospel of the happy God. And those plans, godly plans, are always going to make us happy because this is what God wants for me. That type of happiness flows freely. It flows freely in a relationship with the Lord. For a number of years, there has been a tool used by psychologists called the Cantrell Ladder to measure happiness. It started back in the 1960s, and psychologists and counselors still use it today. This is what it looks like. Take a look. Now, Beth designed this ladder. There's all kinds of different illustrations, but I really like the way Beth did this because if you pay attention to it, it's not just subtle. It's pretty in your face. It starts in darkness and it leads to light. Now, when she put this together, she did that on purpose because that's the way the Cantrell Ladder describes happiness. The Cantrell Ladder teaches us to use three questions all the time to measure happiness in our life, and we measure them based on the rungs of this ladder. If it, you are saying that you are a number one based on the three questions I give you in just a minute, you're saying that things are not very good. You're stuck down in the middle of a dark, dank basement. You are stuck where there is no light and you don't have any way to get out of there. If you're a five, you're on your way. You're about halfway up. If you're a 10, you are living the dream. That is optimal happiness. You have moved into the light and you're about to pop out of that basement into a whole new life. That's the way the Cantrell Ladder works. Now, here are three questions that they always give for people to analyze their level of happiness based on this. The first is, how happy were you in the past? How happy were you in the past? So you have to ask yourself what it was like for you growing up or what it was like just a few years ago, what life has been like. And then you put a little mark somewhere on the rungs of those ladders. If that was a one, if that was a four, if that was a seven, doesn't matter what it was. You put a little mark on one of those rungs and that measures happiness in your life in the past, which leads to question number two. Question number two is how happy are you in the present? So you analyze every aspect of your life. 
relational, occupational, financial, so on. Every aspect of your life is measured based on your happiness today. And you do the same thing. You choose one of the rungs on that ladder. Then the third question, this one is really telling. They ask how happy you envision yourself in the future. Boy, isn't that subjective? How happy do you envision yourself in the future? And then you use the Cantrell ladder, one through 10, and you put a little check mark in there. Then you average the three of those together, and that gives you your level of happiness. It's really quite an effective tool. Now, I want you to picture what that might have been like before Jesus. The first two questions would be fairly easy to answer. Question number one, how happy was I in the past? I was about a four, I was about a six, whatever that might be. How happy am I in the present? I'm a six, I'm a seven, maybe an eight. If things are going really good, I'm a nine. Not quite at the optimal, but things are good. But question number three is going to destroy your curve. How happy are you as you envision your future? Prior to Jesus Christ, people didn't have a future. They lived, they died, and that was it. There was no future. So they'd have to put a a low number on that, a one, a two, unless they were just looking to get out of life and I'm looking forward to a long sleep, whatever that might be. Well, that's going to destroy the whole curve because those three things are going to come back down. Nobody could have ever been above a five because that third question was going to destroy everything. But after Christ, how happy were you in the past? How happy were you or are you in the present? And how happy do you envision yourself in the future? That third question changes everything because in Jesus we have a future. We have a hope. That hope is paradise with God. That hope is heaven. That hope is the best of creation. That changes everything on the Cantrell ladder. It changes everything because now I know what I'm headed for. A few weeks ago, Tina and I were in Phoenix. People heard that we were from Montana, and they kept saying to us over and over and over the same thing. Boy, how do you like being down here in paradise? And we looked at them with dumbfounded looks on our face, our mouths just hanging open. We're like, paradise? I guess we missed that, because this is the closest thing to hell we could imagine. It was, it was hot, and it was crowded, and the traffic was terrible, and we didn't want to be in Phoenix, but all these people believed they were living in paradise, and we're thinking, you ought to come to northwest Montana, but please don't, and then you're going to see exactly what paradise looks like, particularly in the winter. Everybody has a different idea of paradise on this earth, but in heaven, it's all the same. It's the presence of God, and that changes the Cantrell ladder, because if I have the hope of heaven, I have the hope of eternity with Jesus, no matter how bad those other two are, that number is going to come right on up. Psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors, and therapists have applied this over and over and over again, and they have found over and over and over again that when people use those three questions and they then place Jesus Christ over the top of them, they find that each one of their answers goes up on average of two rungs on the ladder. Because that's what Jesus does. He changes our happiness level. And that's exactly what the angels were saying. They brought good news and great joy to the world. Great happiness. Because the happy God had opened up heaven and poured out all of his goodness. The rising sun will come to us from heaven and change everything, including the happiness that you experience in life. You know what scientists have discovered about happiness? that it has immense side effects in our life. Here are just a few of them. If you are actually living a happy life on the Cantrell ladder, on that scale, if you're above a five, you're going to find out that your physical heart is healthier 
because happiness strengthens it. You would find out, number two, that your stress levels go down because happiness does that very thing. It lowers your stress levels. Truly happy people have fewer aches and pains in life. Truly happy people have a better immune system that fights off disease and disability. And happiness has been proven to extend our life on this earth. Those are just some of the byproducts of happiness. They really are. And when that comes into your life, when the rising sun comes to us from heaven and you get to experience the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you will experience the great joy that follows and your life changes. And that's reason to celebrate. That's just reason to celebrate, to go out into the streets and throw a party. This time, not a pagan party, but a righteous party that says, this is what God has done for me. This is what happened around Christmas time. Jesus Christ came into the world, and he brought good news and great joy to every one of us. That's reason to celebrate. It changes your happiness scale. Isn't that just a great byproduct of knowing Jesus Christ? It really is. And there are others that we'll look at in the next couple of weeks. As the worship team comes, I want to leave you with some thoughts from Charles Colson. He, uh, he was a member of Richard Nixon's cabinet, and during the Watergate scandal, he was one of the men that ended up going to prison. But in prison, he became a Christian, and not just a Christian, an outspoken Christian that started all kinds of wonderful ministries. He writes this, One brisk December night, as I accompanied the president from the Oval Office in the West Wing of the White House to the residence, Mr. Nixon was musing about what people wanted in their leaders. He slowed a moment, looking into the distance across the South Lawn, and said, the people really want a leader a little bigger than themselves, don't they, Charles? There's a certain aloofness of power that's exuded by great men that people feel and want to follow. But Jesus Christ exhibited none of this self-conscious aloofness. He served others first. He spoke to those whom no one spoke. He dined with the lowest members of society, had no throne, no crown, no bevy of servants or armed guards. A borrowed manger and a borrowed tomb framed his earthly life. Kings and presidents and prime ministers surrounded themselves with minions who rush ahead, swing the doors wide, and stand at attention as they wait for the great to pass. Jesus said that he himself stands at the door and knocks, patiently waiting to enter our lives. The rising sun will come to us from heaven. He'll knock on the door, and if we will open it, we will have reason to celebrate him forever.